Read with me from Mark chapter 14, verses 22 through 26. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Well, as always, I hope you'll keep your Bibles open with me here to the Gospel of Mark as we continue our study on the road with Jesus in this gospel of Mark that's now brought us to this meal table in Mark chapter 14, beginning at verse 22. In preaching this passage, I have a bit of a choice, okay? You'll understand quickly what I mean. Will I do a sort of overview or a topical sermon on the Lord's Supper or communion, bring a teaching about what it is that we practice this week after week, or... Will I try to press into the narrative of the gospel of Mark and press into what what are the words that we see that the gospel writer, carried along by the Holy Spirit, would give to us in these words? And so when I'm faced with a difficult decision like that, I can kind of get paralyzed, you know, sort of a chicken and egg sort of scenario, right? And so this morning I decided, let's do both. Uh, So this morning um, we're going to have a sermon in two parts or two sermons, depending on how you like it. Uh, now, that may, just made some of you nervous. You're like, 45 times two? It's Father's Day, Jeremiah. Let's get started, okay? This morning, we're going to have a sermon in two parts, the supper in Mark, and secondly, the supper for the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the gospel of Mark. Pray that we'd be attentive to the words that have been read for us this morning, preserved for us, that we would be attentive to your words. And as we are attentive to these words, give us recollection, Lord. Help us to remember the stories. Help us remember the teaching. Help us remember the other narratives. And so that we might not only understand what took place on this day, but what is to take place day after day as a people grounded, created, and redeemed in this reality. This is my body. This is my blood. Would we do this? Would would you work in us as a people of remembrance until you come again? We long for that day, Jesus. God, we, we trust you. We trust you to work in our midst by your spirit and word at work in the midst of the congregation this morning in these next moments. We pray these things in Jesus, our Redeemer's name. Amen. So we're gonna look at the supper in Mark. Now, before we look at our passage this morning, there in verse 22, we actually have to go back just a little bit to understand the narrative, to understand the context. If you go back to verses 12 and 13, in the text. In these verses, you see that Jesus sends his disciples into the city of Jerusalem to make preparation for the celebration of the Passover. That's important. 
the Passover. We'll talk about it more in a moment. They find a large room in the city already prepared as Jesus has unknown to them apparently made arrangements ahead of time so that they all that they have to do is go in, find the right place, and they'll find that the master of that house has already made preparations for Passover. All that the disciples need to do is prepare the meal itself. So now it's evening. The disciples go into town. They find things just as Jesus had said. Jesus and his disciples sit down to eat and to remember together And specifically, to eat and to remember according to an ancient liturgy of the Passover meal. One of the first things that we should see about the Passover meal, as it's recorded for us here in verse 22, is first of all, not all of what took place as the meal is recorded for us. We're we're sort of brought into the midst of the meal, probably two-thirds, three-quarters of the way through. Some would perhaps even place what Jesus, what is recorded for us in our passage today at the very end of the meal, in the institution of a new cup, a new bread. But in any event, we're, we're sort of brought into the middle of a festival. But one of the first things that we should know about this celebration is that it's more than a meal. It's more than another dinner with Jesus, maybe upscale in a nicer room, okay? Remember, the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head, okay? This is more than a meal. It's a feast of remembering. It's a meal that is highly symbolic. And the focus is of the meal of Passover, of this feast, is the remembering of the suffering of the children of Israel in bondage in Egypt. That's the focus of the Passover celebration that Jesus sent the disciples into town to prepare. Now, I just said children of Israel. I, I, I just, I love it when I kind of recognize things and I get to confess my ignorance in public and hopefully bring a couple of the rest of you along with me in now realizing something for years. I don't know why, but it took me forever to recognize why the children of Israel are called the children of Israel. I just thought it was like a neat little phrase, right? Like some biblical doctrine or something. Oh, it's way simpler than that. You see, there's a guy. His name was Jacob. God renamed Jacob Israel. And that man, Israel, is the grandson of Abraham. Abraham, that's Abraham to whom God made the covenant promise to bless, keep, and multiply and through whom God would bless all the families of the earth. That Abraham, Israel is his grandson. So Israel, the grandson of Abraham, an inheritor of the covenant, moved his family to Egypt during a severe famine through a series of divine interventions to preserve him and his family, that is his 12 sons and their families. So during the following 400 years, that family... Israel, his 12 sons, and their families multiplied greatly in Egypt. And so you can see why we call them the children of Israel, because they're like the kids of Israel and so on. I don't know why I'm so dense. I didn't get that. The the great family of the people who multiplied in Egypt were the descendants of 12 sons of a man named Israel. And they themselves are inheritors of the covenant promises of God. And so we call them the children of Israel. But the Passover meal doesn't merely look back on on the season in the life of the children of Israel, their season in Egypt. It also looks back to the reality that the ruler of Egypt, the Pharaoh, began to greatly persecute this 
people, these children of Israel. He brought them into the bondage of slavery and the people suffered greatly, such that they began to cry out in their distress, in their suffering, to cry out, and their cry was heard by the Lord. It's recorded for us in the Scriptures. The Passover celebration is a solemn remembrance of both the suffering of the people and a celebratory remembrance of the intervention of our Lord to bring rescue and a call of that people to worship him as his covenant people. Not just a people who were rescued out of Egypt, but a people who are rescued to the worship of the Lord. This is the history that's celebrated and remembered in the liturgy of this meal that Jesus now sits down to eat with his disciples. So you get the context, right? We're not talking about the Lord's Supper. We're talking about Passover. That's the context into which this passage is dropped. In the midst of this meal, Jesus reinterprets aspects of that ancient liturgy and interjects new symbolism that points to a new and final rescue. So this is a a meal to celebrate rescue into which Jesus interjects new images of a final rescue. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus presents the focus of the supper's symbolism as his substitutionary death. In the Gospel of Mark, if you look at the details, and we will, you'll see the focus that Jesus is bringing as it's being recorded for us in the Gospel of Mark is this image of the substitutionary death of Jesus for this people. This is my blood of the covenant, he says, which is poured out for many. You see? So this is the context of the supper that we read about in the Gospel of Mark. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the narrative very quickly through each of its sections. There are four sections of our narrative. Those sections are blessing and giving, eating and drinking, a new covenant, and then drinking anew. Let's look at blessings and giving. Jesus took the bread first, right? And then he took the cup in the passage, and he pronounced a a traditional blessing. They were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. He pronounced the traditional blessing. The blessings go like this. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the world, who brings forth bread from the earth. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the world, who brings forth the fruit of the vine. It's a beautiful blessing, isn't it? Sounds like something that maybe we should pick up, pay attention to. I like that thankful for it. Jesus is standing in a long line of teaching in his practice in bringing this blessing before breaking the bread and pouring and distributing the cup. At the essence of the teaching, of the practice that Jesus is doing here is this, all good things come from the Lord. If you look at the heartbeat of all of the benedictions, all of the blessings, the, the well sayings, that all is benedicto, benediction, is just good sayings. All of the good sayings, all of the blessings boil down to this, all good things come from the Lord. And secondly, that coming from the Lord, they are situated in the context of his sovereign rule and his generous provision. Do you hear it in the blessing? Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the world. 
his sovereign rule. That's the context into which the blessing comes. Who brings forth fruit from the vine. Generous provision. This is our God. The sovereign giver of grace. And so now, on this day in our passage this morning, the incarnate Lord himself will give a new profound gift. He is going to give the sustenance for his people that it's even greater than the bread and the wine. He can break it. He can bless it. He can give thanks to the Lord God, King of the world, for bringing about the fruit of the land and the fruit of the vine. But now we can turn to him and give the same thanksgiving. I think that one of the most important aspects of Mark's record is in verses 22 and 23, is this. Jesus instructs them to take the bread. And secondly, in verse 23, his act is to give them the cup. Do you see? There is a generosity that is at work by Jesus in this passage. Look at the verbs. Just go through and circle all the verbs and participles of the passage, and you're going to see Jesus at work giving. The Lord's Supper is a gift of the sovereign and generous provision of our Lord. One of the things that's in this passage is Jesus isn't necessarily standing up and saying, I am that ruler of the universe. I am that king who, instead, he's just being that king. And he's just being that generous provider. It's the Lord's Supper Not only because it's about Jesus, it's the Lord's Supper because it's given by Jesus. Take, eat, and then he gives them the cup. It would be appropriate for us to give a blessing, something like this today. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the world, who in this meal has brought forth your very life for us. It would be appropriate. Jesus Jesus blesses the meal, and then he gives it, to his disciples, even to this day. So we have a blessing and a giving. And secondly, we have an eating and a drinking. Verse 23, they all drank it. I simply want to note this here. Jesus is the one who blesses the meal. Jesus is the one who gives the meal. What's the disciples' responsibility? Take it. Receive it. Eat it. Drink it. Partake in the sovereign grace of our God. I'm reminded of one of my favorite verses in Isaiah. I think it's one that's worth putting next to that take and eat. Isaiah 55, verse one. We're gonna refer to a few passages in Isaiah this morning. Isaiah 55, verse one says this. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. How does that work? He who has no money, come, buy, and eat, unless there is a sovereign, gracious provider. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Jesus gives the meal. We are those who receive it. Such is how Mark presents the Lord's Supper. Such is how we ought to read, receive, and understand this institution. So we have the Lord who blesses and gives. We have eating and drinking, and then we have covenant. If we go back to Jesus' words, and this is gonna take a little bit of explanation, 
His words, when he, when he exercises his divine generosity and when he reinterprets these symbols, in the liturgy of the Passover, the bread and the cup are because, according to the liturgy, are because our fathers were redeemed from Egypt. Because our fathers were redeemed from Egypt, we eat and we drink, we remember and we give thanks. When Jesus reinterprets these symbols, he gives them a far more immediate and profound meaning. He says, this is my body. And then he says, this is my blood. So he takes these symbols that that mean that our fathers were redeemed from Egypt. And he says, no, these symbols mean me for you. Now, there's a spectrum of interpretation on these two phrases. This is my body. This is my blood. That spectrum goes all the way from it is his body and it is his blood to it represents these things. It is identical in all aspects, including the substance. It becomes his body. It becomes his blood all the way to a far other end of things. It It represents, it merely depicts or describes his body, merely depicts or describes his blood. Both are errors. Neither one is what is in this passage. Just a little note about it. Jesus surely spoke these words in Aramaic, or perhaps in Hebrew even. It's recorded for us in Greek. In Greek, we have the word is. In the Aramaic, there's no is there. You just don't put, there's no linking verb. You just have this body, this blood. So the is isn't even there to make it identical. We don't have to worry about in the words that Jesus actually spoke before it's been translated really twice for us. Mark translating it into Greek for us. And then our, I'm reading from the English Standard Version being translated from Greek to English for us. It's not is. This does not become flesh, does not become blood, is not identical in all respects, including substance. But it doesn't do justice to what Jesus holds out to us here to say it merely depicts or describes. I like the way that commentator James Edwards puts it. He says, the bread means, the bread conveys my body. It's not the bread is my body. It's not merely that the bread represents my body. It means and it conveys to you my body. That is, Jesus is actually doing something right here in this meal with his disciples, with the bread, with the cup that finds its fullness, not in the bread and cup itself, but in his body and blood is the fullness of what is conveyed to them on that day. So there's not only a blessing, there's not and a giving, there's not only a receiving and an eating and a drinking, there's not only a covenant, but there's also specifically a blood of the covenant. Before we move on to the fourth point, look at verse 24 with me. He said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. The context of the Passover, Jesus is connecting himself to the blood of the lamb over the doorpost by which the Israelite people were rescued from judgment that is about to fall in wrath upon the people of Egypt. 
And because they have that blood over their doorpost, they are passed over and saved for another day and marked out as unique in the midst of the land. This image of blood covering is also used in the purification of the people after the Exodus to prepare them for worship in the presence of the Holy God. Where does that happen? Exodus chapter 24, verse 8. I would encourage you, write that down in the notes of your Bible there. This is what Jesus is referring to when he says this is the blood of the covenant. He's pointing back to another time that something similar was done. Exodus 24, verse 8 says, Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The blood is a marker, a conveying of the nature of the covenant to the people. You hear the covenant language as the blood of the sacrifice is given for the people. In our passage, Jesus' own blood is performing the same cleansing and the same preparatory function of a new covenant. This bread and this cup mean or convey this reality to those who receive the meal. You are being made clean by means of the sacrifice. And you're being prepared to enter into fellowship, presence, and worship of the holy God by means of this covenant sign. I'm gonna read Jeremiah 31. One more passage I would encourage you to put in the margin of your Bible. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34 a lengthy passage, but listen to the, the Old Testament prophets speak of this covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with them, their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, referring back to that Exodus covenant, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. According, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sin no more. What Jesus is bringing with this covenant is something even greater than rescue from human oppression. Even rescue and preservation out from among a people to become a new people and to be given land and to be given promise to be given a law that reveals to them who their God is and how they fall short of his glory. It's something far greater than that. He's bringing the people into a fellowship with himself that is more final than a fellowship that requires a continual sacrifice of a lamb year after year to cleanse the people and prepare them for worship. It is a final purification. It is a final act of preparation for worship. I will forgive their iniquity, he says. I will remember their sin no more. Jesus is establishing the ground of final forgiveness of sin and entrance into fellowship with him. That's what's taking place in our passage this morning. 
In these words, Jesus is bringing all those who are united to him by faith into an ancient covenant relationship, being brought in. All who are united by faith to him, for whom his blood is sufficient covering. And simultaneously, he's pronouncing the final fulfillment of that covenant with a new covenant in his own blood. And we're told, Jesus says, this is a new covenant which is poured out for many. This is the center of Mark's record of the Lord's Supper. I think it's, it's really where Mark is going and what he wants to emphasize for us. This is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for many. We've seen Jesus repeatedly speak of his coming suffering and death. All the way back in Mark chapter eight, he said, the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests, scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. So you have suffering, rejection, Death, resurrection, he's spoken about these things many times. But here, Jesus not only points to his death, but for a second time, interprets its meaning. He doesn't just tell him what's going to happen. Even all the way through the resurrection, he tells us what it means. What I think is the central thesis sentence of the Gospel of Mark is actually Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What's the purpose for which the Son came? Well, you'd have to ask him. And he said, it's to give his life as a ransom for many. Just like in our passage today, we see it's a new covenant in his blood, which is given for many. Jesus will not merely die. He'll not merely give his life as a ransom even. But rather, he will give his life as a ransom to purchase life for a people who can share in his resurrection life. This is what is, listen, conveyed to the disciples on that day. Do you see? It doesn't, it's not just what Jesus is teaching about. It's not merely what Jesus is trying to represent for them. It's what he's giving to them on that day when he says, this is my body, this is my blood. And the last thing in our narrative, in this verse 25, he says this, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day. It is that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. This is the second major theological point that Mark is making. Yes, as a ransom for many, yes. And this simple statement that Jesus is, is indicating, yes, his imminent death. But he's also giving an indicator of his resurrection and victory. And this is the second thing. Yes, he's going to give his life as a ransom for many. But he's going to take up his life and entrance into the kingdom that is forever. Not only will he be raised, he's going to rise victorious in the kingdom of God. There's something that's coming that's greater than anything the disciples might have imagined as Jesus is announcing the gospel of the kingdom of God. And here he gives them another glimpse. He's still teaching them even on the night that he was betrayed. He's teaching them as he's conveying to them his very self as a ransom. As we consider the Lord's Supper in the context of the Gospel of Mark, I want us to see something that most, that's most clearly pointed out to us by that same commentator, James Edwards. He's looking at the context 
not just our immediate passage, but the whole of chapter 14, which again, if you remember that, that this little idea that Mark does over and over again, he gives these Markon sandwiches, we call them, where there's the meat, the substance of the passage, which is our section of Scripture, verse 22 to 25 this morning, but then he gives sort of the bread around it, and the bread around it is an announcement that there's one who's going to betray him, and afterward he tells him that there is one who is going to deny him. In fact, all are going to fall away. James Edwards points this out. They all drank. They all swear allegiance to Jesus, but they all fall away, and they all fled. The original Last Supper is attended by traitors and cowards. It's a table not of merit. It's a table of grace. Listen, this new covenant meal conveys to us that all good things come from the Lord. They're they're situated in the context of his sovereign rule and his generous provision. All good things come not on the basis of merit, but all good things come on the basis of sovereign grace. The gift of this meal isn't on the basis of these disciples' merit or any who come to this meal any day since. Friends, it has not gone away that the problem with this meal is it's attended to by traitors and cowards. I don't know what you had to pray during the prayer of confession, but I know what I did. And yet somehow, as one who would humbly confess these things before our God, we are going to turn to his supper. Not as an act that, look, I'm all clean now, Look, I managed to pull something off, and I I had to confess less this week, but rather, Lord, you are full of grace, and you have given your life as a ransom for me. The gift of this meal is not on the basis of merit. It's a meal of grace, or it's not a gift. So the incarnate Lord himself gives a new and profound gift, a sustenance for his people that's even greater than bread and wine, even greater than rescue from oppression. He's bringing a people of faith into final forgiven relationship with our Lord and Redeemer. This is the supper in Mark. But what is the supper for the church today? What ought we give attention to What is our practice, how we ought to understand what takes place here following the message and prayer and a call to come week after week here at Cross Point Coast and in the church throughout history? I thought probably the best thing to do is go back and look at some of the confessions and catechisms of the church. Now, in my notes, I wrote like 14 pages of all the confessions. I just looked them all up. So let's get started. No, I'm kidding. Uh, We're just going to read two. We're going to look at the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Really, so often they integrate with one another. They're paying attention to one another and learning from one another, trying to be faithful to the teaching of Scripture. Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it this way. The Lord's Supper is a sacrament wherein by giving and receiving bread and wine, giving and receiving, you hear it? According to Christ's appointment, his death is shown forth. And the worthy receivers are not after a corporal or carnal manner, 
That is not according to some changing of the substance into flesh or blood, or even according to our merit, with all his, uh, not according to a corporal or carnal manner, but by faith made partakers of his body and blood, with all his benefits to the spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. I'd point out three things. Just, just make note of these. Giving and receiving, you saw it, right? We see bread and, and wine and what is conveyed in them is shown forth so that we are made partakers. And then you see benefits, spiritual nourishments, and growth in grace. Do you see that? It's in our passage this morning, benefits and spiritual nourishment. And it's certainly in the passages of Scripture that continue to unpack these things for us. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, I would commend that to you. And there's another catechism, it's called the Heidelberg Catechism, all right? It's one of those things that you probably won't remember by the time you leave, but I commend this to you. Go ahead and write it down. It's spelled up here in just a moment. It's so beautiful. This is a great catechism of the faith, which is the warmest. It seems to draw the, 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 the participant nearer to Jesus into intimate fellowship with each question. It begins like this. The first question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? Man, that's a warm question, let alone answer. And here's how the, quest, the answer begins. That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Man, that's a good prayer of confession. All the other things that I thought were comfort in life and in the face of death this week, they're all false and they're insufficient, Lord. I belong body and soul and life and death to my faithful Savior, you, Jesus. I find myself comforted and enriched not only by the answers, but the practical warmth of the questions. Listen to how the question is worded regarding the Lord's Supper. This is beautiful. How are you admonished and assured in the Lord's Supper. You see, all the other catechisms say, what's the Lord's Supper? You know, it's like, well, the Lord's Supper is this. I mean, it's true, it's helpful, it's accurate. This is beautiful. How are you admonished and assured in the Lord's Supper that you are partaker of that one sacrifice of Christ, accomplished on the cross and all his benefits? How are you assured in the supper of all that? Thus is the answer. Okay, all right, thus. And then he goes on for like, I don't even know how many words here. That Christ has commended me of all believe, and all believers to eat of this broken bread. And he's commanded to drink of this cup in remembrance of him. Adding these promises. First, and he's gonna name two promises. And he's gonna use a lot of words to do it. First, that his body was offered and broken on the cross for me and his blood shed for me or for many, you could say. As certainly as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken before me and the cup communicated to me, I can be assured his body was broken and his blood was shed for me. Man, how practical. Further, second benefit that he feeds and nourishes my soul to everlasting life. Man, I need that because I just feel like I'm wasting away daily. 
I need to be fed and nourished to eternal life. How? With his crucified body and his shed blood. As assuredly as I receive from the hands of the minister and taste with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord as certain signs of the body and blood of Christ. Not is me, not is the blood, is the body, not merely representing but conveying to me the body and blood of Christ. All of his benefits. You hear it. It's commanded for me and all believers. His body was broken. The body of Christ broken for you, we say. His blood was shed, and we say the blood of Christ shed for you when you come and receive. As surely as I see with my eyes, the catechist says. This is the grace of the physicality of the meal. As surely as that little bitty cracker is really actually there, and as sure as that bit of juice in that cup is given to me, make no mistake, there is the body and blood conveyed to me. He feeds and nourishes my soul to everlasting life. I can be as sure of his nourishment of my soul as I am that I can taste bread and I can taste the cup in my mouth. Jesus has been given for me. He has given himself as sovereign grace giver to me and he's still blessing and he's still keeping me and all who partake with me on this day, June 19th, 2022, when we come for communion. Absolutely assured. Christ for us. This is then picked up in the liturgical record that we have in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26, we have a record of the early church's practice and remembering. 1 Corinthians 11, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. I feel like I've heard that somewhere before. I think we might have remembered this once or twice. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. He's here. He's being proclaimed. We're remembering the conveyance, the giving of our Lord to us as a people again, as often as we do this, over and over, receiving it into our hands, taking it back to our seats, putting it in our mouth and saying, I can taste the bread. I can be assured of his grace. Until he comes. You can hear the echoes, right? The echoes of our Lord's Supper in Mark is the Lord's Supper for the church. There's not two sermons. There's one. It's one idea, saying certain words. Some might complain about the liturgy, repetition, remembering particular truths over and over and over again. Yes, because as long as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim over and over again, I need to remember this. This is what is true, still true, nourishing me, making us a people together. 
First Corinthians makes it clear for us that from the very beginnings of the church, there is a link between the festivals and the liturgies with the people of God being made together in these liturgical story, repetitious remembrances. So, as we are wrapping up together, I just want to draw our attention to the question, what is the Lord's Supper? I would just offer to us four things that we could remember today. Be helpful for us, perhaps even corrective to some of the ways that we, we can go sideways. Four answers to the question, what is the Lord's Supper. The first is this, it is the Lord's. You see, we don't get to make it. We don't get to mess with it. We, we try really, really hard as the elders here at Cross Point Coast to mess with it as little as, as we can. And we, we recognize even by using little juice cups, we're messing with it. We, we don't get to do that much at all. And so we're cautious, and we, we had a long conversation about, like, should we get more tables, and should we ha- perhaps already have it sitting in your seats? And we did that during COVID for a little while, and we're like, no, it's, it's one table. Well, we've got two. Okay, well, it's one forward space, all right? It's more like a cafeteria gathering. And, but we recognize in all of these things, it's the Lord's table. We don't want to mess with it. We want to receive it. This is my body, he says. This is a new covenant in my blood. It's the Lord who institutes it and the Lord who gives it. It's also, secondly, a sign of the covenant. Here, I just want to point us back to Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. It's a sign of the covenant. The Lord will write his law in our hearts. The Lord will be our God. We shall know him and he will forgive our sin. This is the covenant that he has made with us and he's purchased by his blood for many. Third, it's food. The Lord's Supper isn't for the stomach, but for the soul. And yet the Lord's Supper is physical. It's an outward sign of an inward reality. The body was not a spiritual, non-physical body. It was his body and it was flesh and it was actually broken. Jesus' death isn't a metaphor. His death is very real, very substitutionary, and very sufficient. So that my death is not required as an act of judgment upon me. Oh, I'll die, but I won't be broken like Jesus was broken. My blood will pour out, but it, not for judgment. He's done that for me. It was real and it was sufficient. We touch bread, we remember the nails in his hands. We, we drink the cup and we remember a spear that pierced his side. It is a physical reality. It's food. And third, it's for the community. This is so important. We're so hyper-individualistic, radically individualistic in ways that we don't even notice in our culture and, and social environments. The, when he says, which is for you, the word is Plural. Let's just get started there. It's possible to gather in the same location, do a lot of the same things, but never actually come together. Such as the gathering, such a gathering is more rightly called coming apart. Oh, we can come into one place, but we're not coming together. We're, we're coming apart and separate from one another. Truly, coming together is to come by the invitation of Christ and to come to Christ. All receive the same invitation. All are invited to the same table. I have to pause there. 
Listen, the way that we come together better isn't by having a better connection team. In fact, it's not even the goal of the connection team. Their goal is to remind us that there's someone who has set the table for us. And it's not the connection team, it's Jesus. The the way that we come together is not by being more loving and welcoming of each other. The way that we come together is by remembering that we are together in Christ. By his invitation, we're a people of the table, a people of the bread and the cup, a people of the word and the spirit, a highly visible appeal to come as a people who bring nothing to the table. It's not a potluck. It's not a potluck. It's a perfect representation of the provision of Christ and him crucified that makes us a people together. It's for community. So this morning I call you, don't waste this morning. Don't waste the next moments that we have together. Let's remember well, take, this is for you. Drink, this is for you. Pour it out for you. There is no achievement, no deed, no obedience that stands between you and this meal. Did you hear me? What are you waiting on? There's no deed, no obedience, no performance, no achievement that is between you and this meal. All who come, come as those with need. Hunger, not fullness, hunger. So we ask ourselves the question, am I exalting myself here? Am I proclaiming my achievement that I'm worthy to stand and come forward? Or am I poor in spirit at the foot of the cross with fellow needy sinners so that I stand together and we can truly celebrate with redeemed joy? You see, the Lord's Supper actually isn't a somber moment, but it is a serious moment. It's a part of our celebration. It's a part of our remembering of the ground that enables our celebrations. I said there's no deed, there is no achievement, no performance that is between you and this meal. All that is between you and coming is faith. Not a deed, not a work, a humility to say, I have need. And I have need of the body and blood of Christ, which is broken for many. Ah, When he says that, when the pastor says that week after week, that means it was broken for me. And I'm going to stand up. I'm going to be identified with all of these many as one who is needy of grace. And be assured, we have received it. This is the call to the believer. Don't get too tangled up in your head. Don't get too tangled up in all the questions. Simply a matter of need, faith, and sovereign grace-filled provision. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word that is so clear to us. Your repetitive word, it's recorded in all the gospels, it's, it's recorded in Corinthians, it's reflected upon elsewhere in scripture that you have given us this meal to partake in together. And so we receive with faith. I pray that, Lord, if there is one here who does not have faith, I pray that your spirit would work in that heart to affirm your word that you have died in their place so that they might not suffer but rather receive forgiveness and life in you. And Lord, that all who have received faith would be nourished and encouraged in these moments together. Thank you, Lord, we pray in your name. Amen.